I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres. We try to give you unique insights into your favorite authors and, of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I had the pleasure of interviewing Lisa Brennan Jobs for her book called Small Fry, and Lisa's been on lots of shows. Her book has been reviewed everywhere, and for the obvious reason, her father was uh, Steve Jobs. But what was interesting in the conversation uh, that Lisa and I had was to talk about the universality of some of these topics, being raised by a single mom, uh, having a father that sort of is in and out of your life, of trying to feel like you belong. And yes, there's the element of him being Steve Jobs. So it's it was a fun conversation uh, to have with her. Uh, take a listen here. Today, we are joined by Lisa Brennan Jobs, the author of Small Fry. If you haven't read the book yet, you have likely heard about it because Lisa's father is Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. But this is not a biography of Steve Jobs. Rather, it is a rich portrait of growing up in California in the 80s and one woman's quest to understand her family, her place in that family, and her place in the world. The outline of her story is relatively well-known. Mr. Jobs fathered her at 23, then denied paternity despite a DNA match and gave little in financial or emotional support until later. Brendan Jobs' story has a universal quality in that she is one of many kids raised in a single-parent home with absent or unavailable fathers And others can relate to this. Lisa's mom was financially insecure and sometimes lacking the capacity or interest to parent herself. Surrounded by these complicated relationships, Brennan Jobs spends much of her childhood and adolescence seeking love and acceptance. Yet despite these challenges, you get a picture of a resilient, adaptable woman. She emerges navigating her own way. The New York Times called Brennan Jobs a gifted writer, and in a starred review, Kirkus says Brennan Jobs skillfully and poignantly navigates her formative years, revealing the emotional wounds that parents can often inflict on their children. Small Fry is not about settling scores or being vindictive. It is a poignant story of a journey. In another writer's hands, It could have seemed that way, but with her unsentimental honesty, her wry humor, and her literary grace, Brennan Jobs succeeds in making a difficult story her own. Lisa, welcome to Just the Right Book. Well, my God, thank you. Uh, um, Thank you for having me, and thank you for that introduction, and I love the one woman's quest. Right? Um, (laughs) And and you know, when, when I read it, Uh, One of the things that I kept trying to sort of right-size is what part of this story really was about your father's celebrity and what part of it was just, you know, a, a girl with these, you know, 
two sets of relatively complicated parents just trying to find a spot for herself. I guess those two things are in some ways inseparable because my father did happen to be a celebrity. Although when I was growing up, he wasn't, um, he hadn't achieved the same level of notoriety at all that he did later. Um, So I wanted to write a coming of age story. I had the chutzpah, arrogance, um, selfishness to want to write a story about myself. And then I knew that no matter how well or badly I wrote it, I probably would be able to find a publisher because my father was famous. But then I wanted to write something that was meaningful, both for myself and for other people. And other people because I couldn't do all that work to kind of get to the truth for myself if I was just going to stick it in a drawer. I, I, you can't put yourself through those paces, or at least I couldn't unless it was going to be for other people. So, Lisa, one of the questions that brings to mind as I read it is, how did the book change from what you thought you would be writing about to how you ended up writing? In your introduction, you say something about it not being a sentimental book. And I think it very much is not. And I hope to make it as dry as possible. And the reason I wanted to make it dry or um, without seeming like I was trying to get you to feel a particular thing, was that I wanted, I wanted it to be other people's books. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it started out as, as my book, right? Um, because I wanted to write it, and I wanted to get to the bottom of certain things and have the revelations you have and the surprises you have uh, when you write something. But then, then I want it to be other people's books, meaning you read about my life, but you have your feelings about your own life. Right. Because I think it can be quite distracting that I have this um, famous person in, in, my, in my midst. Um, but, but I think in many ways it is a, a universal story in a sense that we love complicated people. At least I think we do. Mm. Um, that's been interesting during the book tour because people have been, you know, sort of like, why did you love him? Or something. I think, um, is, it, is it true that, that simplicity is a, is a requisite for love? I don't think so. I don't think or so at all. Niceness <laughs> is a requisite for love or constant niceness or something. Um, so it began in a much more drippy, self-pitying way before editing. And for many years, it was, I was trying to get you to feel sorry for me. I was hiding certain details about myself. I felt as if I'd been a victim of certain things and wanted you to feel badly for me. And it took a lot of work to get through to a point where I could laugh at myself more where I understood I had a role in certain aspects of my life in which I'd felt completely like a victim before and where I felt confident about telling you every embarrassing thing and every naughty thing because it only seemed to make me feel more confident and more thorough, more solidly placed on the ground. I've said this before, but I, I read This Boy's Life at some point when I was writing and I realized that the more young Tobias was naughty and mischievous and did shameful things, the more I actually loved him. And mm-hmm. that was a kind of revelation. Ah, I can, you mean I can show all of my less savory parts and that won't make the reader push me away or even make myself, make me disgusted with myself. It might make me like myself more. And that was an interesting revelation. And the other one was, as I was mapping out the chronology, and again, we're years into the process here because 
I didn't really know at the beginning how to write a scene. I'd written essays, but this book couldn't be an essay because I couldn't tell you how to think and feel. I had to sort of show you my life or it would be too dense. I think the essay style is also too dense. So I'm mapping out the chronology. I'm putting on sticky notes all of the different scenes with the help of my ex-boyfriend, who's a filmmaker. Um, And filmmakers, I think, rely pretty heavily on on super sticky notes. Um, So that was helpful. (laughs) Putting it against the wall. I have a photograph, actually, that I posted about that. And then he had read all of the scenes at that point, including the ones of my adolescence. And I was still stuck there meaning I couldn't laugh at it. I couldn't get distance from it. I felt so badly for myself about Mm. it that I couldn't let you have your own experience. I was still having my own, meaning I just wanted you to feel bad for me. And any hint that you might laugh at me or mock me was um, impossible to countenance because that's still how I felt about myself badly. And he said, oh, and the, the detail I didn't include about him is, he, was, he is a filmmaker, but we had also known each other our whole lives, which is rare in my life. And our parents had known each other, so he knew me pretty well and knows me pretty well. And he said, Lisa... Was this Josh? No, no, this wasn't Josh. Oh. <laughs> um, although I did see Josh recently because I was doing a reading um, in Palo Alto at my old high school, actually, because they have a huge space. And, um, and almost everyone in the book was there, which is an odd experience. <laughs> and, include, and I read a scene about him to everyone, and he was there with his wife, too. Um, so it wasn't Josh. It was, was it Josh? Um, it was Kai, um, who was actually the next-door neighbor. So he does have an appearance in the book, and he's the person that I'm dating and living with um, in the book, who is not my husband. Now. Right? But, you know, and, but he was incredibly helpful with the book. And he said, also because he'd been through... I he'd been through the process of figuring out story yeah, and he'd been through the dark night of the soul of figuring out story. And he believed as I believe that if you really get down to the essential elements of story or, or if you really get down to the essential elements of your story, it tends to adhere to the laws of story. Mm. And that's kind of amazing. As a, I mean, that's kind of amazing as a statement, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I agree but with anyway, it. You agree with it? I do. Mm. And man, does that take years. <laughs> so so he said, as we were looking at these sticky notes on the wall, and especially the story of my adolescence, he said, Lisa, I've known you your whole life, and I'm just... And you seem in, the, in, these, in these scenes to have very little agency, very little control. You seem like a victim, and I'm sorry, but I'm just not buying it. Mm. And this made me a little bit bristle. Fortunately, I bristle less than I'm curious, and I wanted this book to be good, and I wanted it to be good also for me, meaning I wanted to have the surprises you get from writing the book. I mm. wanted the revelations. I just was in at that point about my adolescence in a lot of pain and frustration because the writing wasn't working, and also I couldn't figure out how to think about it. It was very painful. So him saying, I just, I'm just not buying it, kind of opened a door for me, too, and I thought, all right, where did I actually have agency in this? And I started to realize, and, you know, Philip Lopate, the writer and, and essayist, and essayist about personal essay, the sort of, and, and friend of mine, has been, his writing has been very helpful on this, this point. Like, get a sense of humor about yourself, you know. Um, so I started to realize where, in my adolescence, I had agency. And, and 
And I had been causing some of the things that I'd been feeling sorry for myself about. Now, it doesn't mean I was causing all of it. But if you can find that little corner of agency, then you suddenly find, you find power. The other thing that had happened, I'm sorry, am I talking too long? No. <laughs> okay, the other thing that had happened is that when I first started writing this book, I wasn't appearing on the pages. And I think this is a bold statement to make because it's, it's so telling about why I wanted to write the book and maybe yeah. in the sense that memoir is kind of self-revelation and therapy for the, for the author in a certain way. It's, it's quite telling that I wasn't appearing on the pages and, it, and I think that's why I had to write it. I didn't feel comfortable taking up space. I can assure you it was not an easy idea that I was going to write a memoir so cringeworthy and embarrassing to be the kid of a famous person and write a memoir. First of all, the famous person is kind of supposed to be in charge of his own narrative. And the idea that I would come in there and butt in my own insignificant story and his significant story was painful and maybe might subject me to criticism. And it just seemed so arrogant to think that my coming of age should be part of this larger professional narrative that many people think and in many ways I think is sort of more important, I guess. You find yourself thinking, like, I, unless I write a book, I, I don't appear on, like, the pages of my own life. So it wasn't until I kind of found my own agency that I kind of started appearing on the pages. And maybe it meant I was naughty, and maybe it meant I was devious, but I suddenly started being present in my own life. So, Lisa, it's yeah. listening to you talk about this, It aside from any um, a value about the book in terms of telling the story, Mm -hmm. it seems like the most significant part of this book is that it profoundly altered your life. Am am I hearing that correctly? I think books are really not, my book is really not for me anymore. So what I'm hoping is it will profoundly alter or bring meaning to or bring pleasure to or bring insight to other people. And so my own story of the book was only, I think, honestly, in service of that. And I don't think art is about helping people necessarily. I think it's about meaning and insight and pleasure. And so that's what I'm hoping I'm bringing. In terms of for me and my life, I don't think if you're a writer that you want to write a memoir that can be mistaken as a celebrity memoir. And I don't think it's been mistaken for that now that that it's being read. But I guess what I'm saying is the stakes for me were high. If yeah, I didn't no, I get that. It, I didn't sort of appear. Yeah. I get that. I get that. But if I'm listening to you, the mm-hmm. process of writing the book actually allowed you and motivated you to change how you thought about yourself. Absolutely. But I imagine that's true of all memoirs. And maybe that's why we write memoirs, because mm-hmm. we can't do anything else. You know, and that's why I asked the question. You know, one of the reactions that I had reading the book, and I want to get uh, specific in a minute about some of the pieces, is, you know, as I read about what it was like for you with a mother who seemed, you know, you've got a scene in the car with your mother where she, I think you're seven or eight, and she breaks down sobbing and says she doesn't want to do this, meaning she doesn't want to parent you, or this is more than she wants. And 
you know, the fact that your father was Steve Jobs would have very little to do with the fact that you, as a little girl, needed to absorb that or put it in perspective or respond. I think, yeah, I think so. And I think that the reaction I've had to the book in some ways is, oh, what a dramatically unusual story. And the other reaction I've had is that people find themselves relating so intensely with one part of my story. And I've had single mothers come to me crying and want to go talk with my mother. I have a friend who's um, strikingly put, strikingly beautiful and put together, and um, I think she has a lot of money, and I'm only saying that because it's a, a contrast to my own situation and my mother's situation growing up. And she said to me, you know that scene about your mother yelling at you in the car? That's me. Mm. And I thought, oh, right. I don't have experience with losing my temper that way, but I think a lot of women who are mothers or have been mothers can relate with being at their wit's end. And then seeing her situation, how hard it was, um, it kind of puts it over the <laughs> puts it over the top. I was actually worried when I wrote that. I originally had that scene toward the end of the book. And the reason I had it toward the end, even though it chronologically appeared in the beginning, was because I didn't want you to hate my mother before you'd ever got, before you'd even gotten to know her. And I worried that people would judge her so harshly as she's yelling in the dark car in the rain, lost, at her four-year-old daughter sitting beside her. She wasn't yelling at me, but she was yelling about life near me, and it terrified me. She said later when I talked to her after I wrote the scene, oh, yes, and I worried at that moment because I knew you were old enough to remember that That moment. moment. Yeah. Um, But I think what happened was that it seemed important to make it a coming-of-age memoir. It seemed like the formative events were far enough apart that I kind of had to end the book before my 20s. I had to end it when I left for college Mm. in the classic way. Um, to give myself also enough enough distance and time to reflect on most of what I was writing about. Right. Enough space, enough time. I found the relationship with your mom and your mom's way of operating as a mother to be worthy of its own individual story. Well, good. I'm happy that you say that. It's been a little tough being only asked about my father and thinking this is actually the story of a girl coming of age in America and in California. And, and my mother's character is fascinating. I actually, when I started writing the book, I thought, ha ha, people are going to think people are going to buy the book for Steve Jobs. And then the only interesting character or or a parent is going to be my mother. And, but to to my dismay, he actually did turn out, turn out fairly interesting on the page. But I think that her story is quite interesting too and even the fact that you say that, you see, some people don't find her story as interesting. I think people latch on to the stories of the characters that somehow are meaningful to them. So there must be something maybe about my mother that is meaningful to you. I mean, it's mm-hmm. interesting to me, but, you know, I grew up with both my parents. My my mother was the opposite of a hippie. Um, right. You know, she was an immigrant. So it was a very different story, but I related to her as a woman, you know, thinking about a woman being put in that position where, you know, they're sort of freewheeling. 
Right. And then they have this responsibility. And, you know, in reading about your mother, I went from saying, honey pie, what were you thinking? Yeah. To poor baby. Yeah. You know, I also felt that way when I was writing. They were 23 when I was conceived and I think born. And they were so young and it was not an optimal time by a long stretch for either one of them. And my mother wanted to have an abortion. I actually asked her all about this and she just had felt unable to. So when you, when you turn this around and look at it in the light, you find this kind of intractable situation where she knew the right thing wasn't to have a kid then. And she yet she felt she had to go forward. And I'm Mm. so glad I was born and I've always been happy to be here. What's your mother think about the book? Well, I wanted to say, I like, I started out, she had been so encouraging about writing it. And the reason she'd encouraged me to write it is because she felt that if you don't want to unconsciously repeat patterns or unconsciously repeat your own history, you've got to make sense of it. Mm. You've got to understand it. And I found that phrase that she kept on saying, you need to know your history so you don't repeat it, a little bit trite and uh, a little bit obvious. And I really didn't want to write a memoir. And she kept on repeating it. And I think it, it made me bristle because I knew I kind of had to do it. Um, and it was easier to blame blame her for that than to own it. But when I started writing the book, I was, I've was i been so grateful to her for holding it together as well as she has and for being really a kind of exquisite, exceptional mother when she's on. When she, you know, when she is an exceptional mother, she's sort of like out, out of this world good. Um, and so I certainly didn't want to reveal her more difficult sides. But it was interesting starting to write the scenes about my mother because, and I wonder, wonder if other writers and other memoirists would relate to this or other artists, but it felt like I was kind of killing her. It felt terrible. Even, and I kept, kept on reassuring myself, you can cut this out later. You don't need to keep this in the book. Mm-hmm. But I think I knew as I was writing some of those scenes that they were going to be meaningful and they were going to be good. And if they were going to be meaningful and good, it was going to be really hard to cut them. I didn't pull punches. If you talked with my mother or my therapist since I was eight, both of them had said, have said it was actually harder than you wrote. So, yeah. but, and I didn't, you can't always get that in. But so, so my mother, I gave her a copy before I published it and she read through the whole thing and I was getting, and it, I really I admired her for that. And I was getting texts in the middle of the night, like, I don't agree with this. This is not correct. Um, and then she said, you know, we didn't move that many times. We did have furniture. And so I, I sent her my pages of my page of the houses we moved to and asking her like, okay, what, what's incorrect about this? And then she said, oh, well, that actually is correct. <laughs> and then I said, well, don't you remember looking at the living room and, and, and looking around? And we hadn't, she said, we got a bedroom set from, from Jim and Faye. And that's my, my grandparents, her dad and, and stepmom. And I said, well, there's a reason we got that hideous bedroom set from them, right? I mean, we didn't have any furniture. <laughs> but I think she took it as a personal insult, like like she hadn't been able... To provide for you. Yes, but the truth is, I was saying, Mom, it's okay. We didn't have furniture. That's the fact of it, and it's okay. We made it. You know, so I think there is some PTSD here. But I admired her for... She wanted me to write a memoir, and I depicted her honestly, and she is a full character. And... She has been supportive, and she said, it's true. What you wrote is true. It's horrific for me to read, but it's true. Not that the book is horrific to read. I think in some ways it's very pleasurable, but it's hard to read about oneself, honestly. And then, so I admire her, I've got to say. And what do you think makes your mom happy now? 
<laughs> or do you think she was ever she, happy? Yeah, I mean, she she she's she's often happy, and when she's happy, she's incandescent. Mm. She is. Um, I love that word. Yeah, she does. She has this kind of luminous beauty, um, and she she's sort of sparkly. She loves um, people. She loves being with her friends. She has a book group that she loves. She loves doing it well. She loves having revelations with her own paintings. She mm. loves her grandson. I mean, I thought she was going to be a, maybe a little bit cooler, but it turns <laughs> out since he's been born, she's like, you know, every, you know, we send out pictures and she says, he's a genius. <laughs> oh my God, are you a cliche or what? But it's wonderful. I had no idea it would be like this. And I'm sad that my father didn't get to experience We'll get right back to my conversation with Lisa Brennan Jobs in a minute. I'd like to take a short break to tell you about today's sponsor, which is actually a book. So that makes sense. Uh, and the name of the book is The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford. And here, here's some quotes about her book. Uh, this is from Hoda from the Today Show. It's never too early to get advice from Kathy Lee. Of course, Kathy Lee's her pal. Uh, this beautiful book is full of life lessons for your little one. My Haley loves it. Uh, Savannah Guthrie, another pal, uh, says pictures are adorable. The message is important, uh, teaching kids to be generous with their hearts. Here's here's what I got. Um, it's a picture book, so it's for little kids. But what what it does is, you know, a lot of times when you talk to kids, you say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? What this picture book by Kathy Lee Gifford reminds us to say is instead to say, what do you love to do? And what that question suggests is that each kid has their own gift. And by asking them what they love to do, you're encouraging them to develop their own gift and be their person. And so, I, you know, I, I like that message. I think it makes sense. It's a way for kids to take some pride in their own identity. So I, I, I get why people like Hoda and Savannah like the book, but I can see how as a parent, you'd like to encourage that message. So for the uh, entire month of November, our listeners can get 30% off uh, this book, The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford, just by entering the code JTRB. Visit store.faithgateway.com, store.faithgateway.com, and apply the code JTRB, and you can buy the book and get 30% off. How fun is that? Let's talk about your dad uh, for a minute, because I know in the book you certainly relate a number of incidents that would make most of us shudder that a father oh God, really? uh, would do that. You know, oh, that my would, father, yeah. Yeah, that would be insensitive to you, that would be um, dismissive of you, that would behave sometimes that others might... Uh, think was inappropriate, but I get the feeling that at the end of the day, you don't feel that way, and that that you have hoped that the view that people would have 
of your father in this book would be one of the aspects that were wonderful about him as your father. Well, we certainly ha- he certainly had some tricky moments, that man. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a little shocked at the reaction um, because... But why, Lisa? Uh, because <laughs> there have been movies and books that I have been well reassured have depicted him in a way that is quite um, honest and without pulling punches. Mm-hmm. And sometimes caustic and sometimes incredibly biting and difficult. And so the idea that I was in some way saying something that was new was a surprise to me. I see. Um, I think it's been explained to me, David Remnick explained to me, because I I started, I was so exhausted when I had this New Yorker interview and I arrived at 5 p.m. and I'd been up since 5 a.m. And then he started asking me about the books and the movies that I've never seen about my father and how my book was different. And I just or how my book supported those things. And I have, haven't seen the movie, and I haven't written, read Walter Isaacson's book, so I started saying, well, why is my book different? I don't, I don't understand why this is some sort of revelation. And he said, because it's visceral. Yes. It's from the perspective of a daughter. And I think it did make me realize that people's imaginations are working in interesting ways. Perhaps they thought he was difficult at work, but just lovely at home always. You know, and I thought, don't we know more about human nature than that? But the other thing is that I have been... I have felt like I had to walk a tightrope a little bit in the publicity department. And so I've been trying to push back at it. And I've been pushing back saying, no, this is a complicated character and we love complicated people. If you look at your own life, you love complicated people. Um, My life is not an exception to yours. It may be in greater contrast in certain ways. But I think that um, because I've been hit with only the bad stories, I mean, I had an interview, for example, yesterday, with the BBC, and she just kept on bringing up bad story after bad story. And I know mm. there are a lot of bad stories, but there are also some wonderful ones. And so because I've been hit with all the bad ones, and because this is actually a character, a dimensional person that I knew and continued to try with, I have been hitting back with the good stuff. So what and do I you want? I haven't really been able to say the truth, which is more balanced, which is like, yeah, some of these things were so painful, it was hard to walk afterward. For me, mm. I had to write this because it was outrageous. So, Lisa, what do you want the reader to take away about your father as a father? I guess I just, I'd rather not be a freak, and I'd rather that he wasn't a freak. Mm-hmm. I'd rather they would, I'd rather they had moments of seeing parts of themselves and parts of people they know in my characters, rather than pushing it away and feeling as if, it's completely unrelatable. But, of course, it's not my book anymore. It's the readers, as I said. So perhaps that's too much to ask. Yeah, but, you know, um, one of the here's a question that I often have when I see people who act in ways that are surprisingly um, either brusque or even mean-spirited. I'm always curious where they're coming from. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, there's one other thing that happened to me, which is I, I haven't been reading my reviews because I need to keep my equanimity because I have a young child. My son is six months now. And so during the entire um, book tour, he's been tiny and I can't go up and down with the latest review. And so even sometimes magnificent reviews I have heard 
have interpreted the book in a way I wouldn't necessarily interpret it. And I heard there was something about, I don't know if it was the New Yorker or the New York Times, and how lucky it is to be reviewed in those places, so I'm not complaining, mm-hmm. where they sort of psych- pop-psychologized me. And the, the, the reviewer was saying something like, um, how does she not realize? How is she not more angry? And my reaction to that was like, again, like you said, the word sweetheart. Sweetheart, I don't remember if this is a woman or a man, but sweetheart, I'm the person that put in the scene that made you angry. Do you think I accidentally slapped those in after, you know, almost a decade of work? No, I put them in. I am the person on the trampoline standing very still so that you have the opportunity to fly up. It was Mm. not an accident. If it makes you mad, that I did that. And so I've been a little bit aggravated with this. Does she forgive him? Does she not forgive him? And I think, like, read the book and you figure out how you feel. Yeah. Because... I, I'm not telling you how to feel, and I'm not telling you, I'm telling you how I feel through your feelings. I'm trying to directly access your feelings and let you live in the story, not tell you how I feel. It seems too simple, and it seems as if then I'm taking the candy. It made me think about your father, not as Steve Jobs, who, you know, I've read about for decades as the man who invented Apple. Mm-hmm. But I actually read this where I didn't think of your father as anyone other than a man. and Well, that's a, an accomplishment. That is the way I, you know, the fact that he was the who he was. Frankly, Lisa, when I was reading, it felt kind of incidental. Well, to, good. That's what I was hoping for, because <laughs> the fact that he was so famous didn't have much to do with the fact that he was my father. Well, it, well, and that's my that that's really uh, what's prompting this uh, few questions that I'll have for you. One is what you know, he was adopted. What you know, what was it that he was trying to deal with? One, one of the things that you talk about at the very end of the book, which I found fascinating was him bringing up how hurt he was that he hadn't been invited to a parents' weekend at Harvard. It was the matriculation weekend at Harvard, and he's dying, and it's like 10, you know, more than 10 years later and 15 years later. And I say, why didn't you talk to me for all those years during college and after? I mean, for me, I didn't know why he'd gone away, and it was just so painful. And I suddenly didn't have a father. And he said, I said, well, you know, he's so thin and he was dying. And, and so I, I, and it's, I have a happy disposition, I think, and I have a loving disposition and I didn't want to screw things up. So I said, well, maybe, maybe it's just because well, he was working a lot. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, you thought he was with your father, but this person was, wor- you know, he used to sometimes respond to my email with one word, like fine. And I would think like, how mean is he? And then only later did I realize, oh, he probably got a thousand plus emails a day mm. that he had to respond to. So the fact that he even responded, he probably thought was amazing. I mean, you know, I forget about his work. He was my father. And so, but he said, the reason I didn't talk to you for all those years is because I've been really hurt that you didn't invite me to the matriculation weekend at Harvard. And I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, even at the time, I've been like, well, only my mother got to, got to come to one thing, and my father's got to come to another. And I, knowing that my father was very sensitive, even though he didn't necessarily cop to that, and he seemed really tough, I had talked with my therapist. I had talked with both of them. I'm thinking of doing it this way. Does that work for you? They both said yes. And then he said he harbored this rage or this pain 
that I hadn't, he hadn't been invited to that Harvard weekend, which, I mean, for a man who's constantly in, insulting Harvard and the East Coast seems a little rich. But also I thought, oh, even when people are dying, they're still maybe lying to themselves. Of course, mm. right? What, what would they stop just then? And I thought one of the big revelations for me in this book where I take the permission to write about myself as if I'm important. One of the big revelations in this book was, oh, he didn't start ignoring me because he started hating me or thinking I was not important or nothing. I think that when I went away to college, I hurt his feelings, mm. which I don't know what the psychological um, assignment for that would be. Does that mean that he is a narcissist? Does that mean that he is immature? Does that mean, I don't know what it means, but I think that now having a, a child and, and thinking about this a bit, we had not had those early years. Mm. We had not negotiated our distance and closeness, which is so much of what this time is about. My son was sleeping in our bed, then he was sleeping beside our bed, then he was sleeping, in, now he's sleeping in his crib. At some point, he'll be going to school, and then someday, um, he will go away and have his own life. Yeah. And it will be the swings of this pendulum ever wider that will get me used to this point, where when someday, after doing all the whole hard work of raising him, I get to celebrate him. Mm-hmm. And me and my father, because he had skipped so many steps, we're not ready for that. Yeah. And because he had trouble talking about anything emotional or opening himself up for being vulnerable, which is understandable, but I think that he he was bereft. And, it, and it's so embarrassing to say this because I'm like, just me, just little me? He didn't care about me. That's why he didn't contact me. Yeah. But And now I get to have the final word because he's dead. Maybe if he was alive, he'd say, bereft, I didn't care about you. But in writing, I thought, oh, that's what hurt him, is that I left him. But he also, I also, in the way you write about uh, those last conversations uh, with your father, I would say he seemed, uh, the way you wrote about it, both regretful and accountable. In the last conversations with him over the weekend, a month before he died, he was bereft, remorseful, um, just sort of taken over by grief in a way that finally felt like a reflection of the grief I felt. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like even if it was so late and he was so thin that there was no double-sided conversation I could just observe, it felt like a balm. I think I might have written this, but it felt like a balm on a burn, like cool water, like Oh, you did say that. Oh, to finally feel as if my truth, the truth for me, is not something I made up. Yeah. yeah. That this was as significant as it felt to me, that I wasn't just this sort of ancillary aspect of his life that didn't really matter, that what was important to me was important. And he said, you know, I didn't spend the time, and now I can't. And mm. I thought, oh, you don't want to be dying like that. Because if time is your issue, if you misappropriate, misspent your time in a certain way and didn't spend time doing the things that were actually important to you, you cannot make it up in the last month. And Lisa, you know, one of the things that I felt sad about was, you know, I know every story has three sides. And when I saw the statement that uh, Lorene and Mona issued about them being surprised about some of the things that you said. Mona had actually read the book already and helped me with it. Um, Right. You had sent it to her early, right? 
Yeah, and then she, yeah, and she had some great comments about helping my mother's character um, continue to have a through line during the time I moved into it with my father. I had kind of dropped my mother a little bit in in those years because I didn't know how to do it, and she was helpful in saying, you just need a detail here and a detail there. She was helpful about other things. I've been using words that were too large as a child. Um, some words are still there. They're still large because they don't stick out, but certain words I had to cut out. I was scared to cut them out because I was worried you'd realize then that I wasn't intelligent, but finally I could let them go. Um, were you surprised by their reaction? I was surprised and hurt. Mm. And do you have a relationship with them now? You read the book, there's love there. Mm. Most people that I've talked with who participated in the story, who were in my story and also in the book, have said to me, oh my God, it is exactly what I remember. The librarian, my old therapist I talked with, my dad's ex-girlfriend. Characters are often more, people are more interesting as full characters, meaning some of the people in my book are more interesting, I guess, than they appear in my book because they're full characters. And in my book, they're just partial characters in a certain yeah. way. Cause, but people have really gone out of their way to tell me how accurate I got it. Even people I was worried would be upset by the portrayal I gave them. Like people like Tina? Um, uh, well, I don't think Tina would be upset by it, although maybe she would. But Tina, Ron... Um, they were confirming, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've said, like, well, Ron actually wrote me a funny note, and his email was titled Correction. I thought, oh, no. And I opened it up, and he said, well, everything about the character named Ron in your book seems to be based on me. Uh, there is something that's incredibly inaccurate. You describe Ron as having fish lips and hair <laughs> like a clown. And in the future, I would like to, I am attaching the photograph um, for your reference. <laughs> And he attached a photograph of Fabio. <laughs> so for for our listeners, Ron was your mom's boyfriend for a while. And That's right. And and I was a bit tough on him. And the reason I described it, I thought, oh, no, why did I describe Ron so harshly? But I looked back and I realized, oh, it's because he's walking in the house and he's about to go on a first date with my mother. Yeah. And I hated him. <laughs> so, so, you, so everything is infused, of course, with my perspective. But I've gotten so many positive bits of feedback about the accuracy of, of my depiction of the place yeah. and of the character. Lisa, it's your story. So I've been told. It's just that that permission to write a story um, was something I had to work hard to give myself. Mm. And I think it is true. It is my story. But I also hired a fact checker, went and spoke with everybody, went and looked at the old houses, went and uh, double-checked everything because it felt to me like I wouldn't have much room for error in terms of fact. And I yeah. think I, I really didn't. So I do think that there's a difference between the portrayal being accurate and someone not liking it. Well, sometimes someone won't like it exactly because it is accurate. That's my point. And I think that that's a little bit of what's happening. is just that there is um, a desire for a particular image, perhaps. Yeah. And I don't, that, that doesn't serve me, you see. Right. I mean, the truth was it wasn't particularly fun to be the dark side of someone's glorious story. No, and this no. book is in some ways an attempt to understand the subtlety of that right. for myself, so that I was not the dark side of someone else's story, but was was understanding the story on my own terms from my own perspective. And I really had to fight for that because I am, you know, I, I've dredged up all of the embarrassing and 
mischievous stories from my book, but I pretty much as a person am um, accommodating and I wish for people to be happy with me, pleasing. And so it was tricky to take up this space and I knew it would not make certain people happy and I didn't want to make them unhappy. So I have actually been surprised by the happiness I have found. Mm. So Lisa, speaking of happy, what do you think made your father happy? <laughs> uh, it's funny. I was just about to repeat the same things I said about my mother. His work, his stroll, taking walks, looking at nature, being curious. I think he had dear friends, work colleagues. It seemed sometimes like that would be fun to be a work colleague of his because they got to do exciting things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I think he loved, and I, and I count myself in this, I think he loved his children. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was quite funny sometimes. So I imagine that made him happy. Yeah. Um, so here, here's my, my last two questions. One is, so now you're a mom, and how has your childhood now informed what's important to you as a mother? Um, and so I certainly will endeavor to be a good communicator because I think using words is important. And some of the way in which me and my father failed or my father failed was that he didn't find it easy to communicate sometimes. Yeah. And maybe it felt made him feel quite vulnerable. I did appreciate another thing I did appreciate when I went back and wrote the book was that he abandoned us when I was younger. And then he came back and kept trying. And I thought, just as an adult looking back, older than he was then, that's a hard thing to do, mm. to make a mistake and then really try and keep on trying to make it better again. And he did that. And I admire that. And I hadn't realized the significance, the import, and the, the work of that until I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of things that were quite important because they changed my idea of myself. And so here I am now, a mother, but I feel more empowered on this earth. It's funny, it's like I've told you all of my shameful and embarrassing stories, um, and I've told you all of the places where I felt lost and like I shouldn't exist or like a speck. Mm. And I've and yet now I feel more like I do exist for having done it. Yeah, it's an ironic outcome. Yeah, and I, and I imagine that that will be helpful being a parent. Right now I'm just sort of trying to enjoy it and trying to get through Mm. because I've been doing book tour stuff and book stuff. You know, I mean, I did a final edit actually when he was only a few weeks old, I sort of, I had help three hours a day and I would kind of like have a cappuccino and go. And I think, um, I'm really looking forward to, and right now I have a first book review I've ever written to write and I really want to do justice to the book, which is quite good, but I feel a sense of dread because I've never done it before. And so I'm looking forward to when the dread is gone. I mean, PR was really hard because I've never done it before. Right. And so I, you know, and, and the idea that you're going to like have a coughing fit on live television is terrifying. You know, right. whatever you do, it will, be, it will be preserved. Are you working on something new yet? No, no, not yet. I don't know what the new thing I will work on is. I hope it will be nonfiction and not about me. <laughs> Lisa, the book, the the question I ask all our guests is, what's the book that you read that changed your life? Oh, God, so many books have changed my life. I was talking with this guy who was a bookseller. I realized that book sales are like, it's, they're sales, right? So yeah. you have to, it's not like this, I, it's not so quaint as you might think. It's like a sales job. 
and he was he was he had been bookstores had been hiring him and hiring and hiring and and upping the ante and paying him more because he was so good. And so I was so I said to him something of trying to get something out of him, and I said, "Oh, I guess if you sell the right book to the right person, you change their life, don't you?" And he said, "You not only change their life, you can change it's generational." Mm. If you get the right per- book to the right person at the right time, you can change generations. And I thought, oh, you are good. <laughs> and I believe it. It's true. Yeah. Um, I, I love reading Alice Monroe, but I can't pinpoint the exact thing. I love Shirley Hazard's Transit of Venus. Mm-hmm. I, love, I loved this boy's life because it unlocked I my love own that book for book. me. I loved I that loved. book. It opened it up. It opened my own book for me. Um, I... I love D.W. Winnicott because he talks about being with children and raising children in such a forgiving and um, elegant, eloquent way. Um, and I love, I love the Shakespeare plays about orphans mm. because I got to feel myself in those roles at yeah. times, as I imagine many people do. Yeah. So I love, you know, Winter's Tale and actually many, many Shakespeare plays are about orphans. Um, but especially Winter's Tale and Perdita and Hermione. And um, trying to think of something else, although I'm sure you just wanted me to say one thing. I really no, love. That's good. I'm sure a lot of people love Marilyn Robinson's housekeeping. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite. That's in my top 10. It's just. What appeals to you? Do you think about it? The, maj- the majesty of, of not being so neat and tidy and perfect. Mm-hmm. And then the done side and what that brings. Yeah. I love that word, the majesty of the undone. So, Lisa, thank you for your time. Um, thank you for the book. I'm glad we got to talk about some of the parts of the book that are a little bit different. That was such a treat. Thank you so much for your questions and for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to Lisa Brennan-Jobs. Her memoir, Small Fries, is available now. I hope you'll continue to send us your thoughts and emails. You can email us at info at com. Or message us on our Facebook page. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening. Hey, Just the Right Book listeners, this is Christina Torres, the show's producer. And here at Just the Right Book podcast, we love books. And we love going to our favorite indie bookstores to browse the staff suggestions. It's what they call shelf talkers in the book biz. Well, imagine having your own personal bookseller who handpicks books just for you. Just the Right Book subscription service is a personalized book of the month club that delivers Just the Right Book to you or the voracious reader in your life's mailbox. How does it work? Well, first you go to justtherightbook.com and choose a 4, 6, or 12-month subscription. Then tell us about your reading tastes and preferences, favorite authors, genres, books, and more. Then your own personal bookseller will send you books picked just for you. And if a book is not just right, no problem. It can be exchanged for another. So, if you're looking for the perfect holiday gift for the book lover in your life, we've got you covered. Right now, until December 9th, we're giving you the chance to save 10% off of one subscription or 15% off of two subscriptions. 
Just go to justtherightbook.com and enter the promo code PODCAST10 for one or PODCAST15 for two Just the Right Book service subscriptions. Okay, so go to justtherightbook.com, pour a cup of tea or a glass of wine, sink into your favorite chair, and experience the pleasure of a great read.